welcome to everybody while we're doing that. My name is Maddie. A lot of you guys might recognize me as the worship pastor. I'm often up here playing guitar and singing, uh, but today I get the honor and the privilege of sharing out of God's word. Um, you all know that we're in a series on 1 Thessalonians, and last week I think Adam, I think Adam wrapped up chapter two. But this week, we're gonna jump ahead just a little bit. We're gonna talk about uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses one through eight. Now, before I do that, though, I wanna start out with a few things, a few statements, and I hope that they're kind of obvious, but we're gonna go through them anyway, right? So, what we study, what we sing about, what we talk about from the stage here comes out of the Bible, right? This is our source as Christians, our source of absolute truth. The things that we believe come out of here. It's God's word that's been revealed to us through the inspired writings of men that were guided by the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, every once in a while, somebody will say something like, well, you can't believe the Bible. It was written by men, right? Yes and no. It was written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is how we know that every word is true. We know there's no error in here. Uh, Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. In fact, let me read to you the statement that's on our website about the Bible. Uh, this is from visitlegacy.org in our statement of faith if you wanna check it out. It says, the Bible is God's word to us. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it is inspired by God, it is the truth without any mixture of error. And again, that's what we believe about the Bible. Um, and for Christians, the Bible offers us truth. And as we read it, as we start to grasp the truth in here, it offers us guidance for our lives. But even more important, it offers us hope. Because uh, we know that we can trust it. We know we can believe it. So, so don't worry. We haven't like wandered into Pioneer Kids accidentally, you know, going through the very basic things. We're gonna, we're gonna get somewhere with this. Um, because as Christians, one thing that, that I've noticed, and I, I do it too, I don't even like to say that I do it, but maybe I don't do it too, obviously, but sometimes it happens. Like we, we say with our words that we believe what's in the Bible, but then the way we live out our lives doesn't always back that up. And, and scripture is true, right? We've said that a bunch of times already. But every once in a while, the truths of scripture come into conflict with parts of our lives. They come into conflicts with the things that we wanna do. And scripture, every once in a while, will just directly confront us, right? It will confront us um, with unpleasant, uncomfortable, inconvenient things. And I find myself saying this on a regular basis when I come up here, but as Christians, we don't have the the latitude to just disregard the parts of scripture that we don't like. Um, we have to take the Bible at its word. We can't just leave behind the parts that make us feel bad or leave behind the parts that make us uncomfortable. Um, for as long as we've had the Bible, it hasn't changed and it's not gonna change for us. So if we find ourselves bumping up against something in scripture that's a little uncomfortable or a little bit weird, it's not the Bible that has to change. It's us. Um, I wanna make one disclaimer as, as I sort of look out. So we are gonna be talking about sexual topics, specifically sexual immorality, sexual sin. So if you have a kid in here that might otherwise be in Pioneer Kids and you don't wanna have a conversation about this on the way home in the car, you can, you can send them over there now. Nothing will be inappropriate or anything like that, but 
we will be talking about some, some stuff that might be a little bit challenging for some people. So with all that said, let's go ahead and if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. We're gonna look at verses one through eight. I'm gonna read through the entire thing and then we're gonna sort of break it down piece by piece. It starts out saying, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So a word about the church at Thessalonica. Um, Adam and I talked about this a little bit, and just this is gonna be a part of the context. We have more context, but I've heard them referred to as one of Paul's favorite churches, you know, and they were, they were an example of a great church in their culture. And part of the reason for this is that they stood out from the people who lived around them because of the way they lived. So they were living out the teachings from scripture that Paul was giving them. And as a result, they looked very different from the culture that surrounded them, you know, they were distinctly Christian. And we see this in the first two verses. So uh, if we go back to verse one, he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing. He's acknowledging that they've taken this teaching, that they've received it, and they're living it out, uh, that you do so more and more. And then, of course, encouraging them to continue in that. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So, these first two verses, again, they acknowledge the efforts that the Thessalonian church is putting into applying the teaching that Paul's given them. Uh, but there's still struggles, right? They're human. And the second part of the context is what's pretty interesting. As I look out at our culture, at our society today, at the state of entertainment, at the state of politics, at the state of a lot of different things, like it's easy for me to say, is it possible that there's ever been a worse culture in the world, in the history of all mankind? And the answer is yes, um, there has. In fact, as we look at this, the Greco-Roman culture from the time of the Thessalonians, they had a very different idea, a very different sexual ethic in their culture. So, you know, the point here is not to go into any kind of like crazy detail, but just to give you an idea of what the church there was facing when Paul's writing this letter. So we'll start with marriage, because marriage is gonna be very important today. Um, typically, marriages were arranged, right? They weren't, they weren't a situation where people dated, they, they started to like each other, they fell in love, and then they decided to spend the rest of their lives together. A lot of times, it was a man in his 20-somethings and a girl who was barely a teenager. Their parents got them together, and, and the marriage was simply to, to have children and to run the household. So as a result of this, the men were basically expected to seek their fulfillment outside of the household. It wasn't taking place within their marriage. There were prostitutes, there were slaves, there were you know, mistresses of lower class uh, society. 
And just to make things even more complicated, the temples that the pagans at the time worshiped in were also known as dens of immorality. Like what they called worship involved all kinds of things that we would call perverse or degenerate. And these were the things they were offering to their gods. So, so we've got the societal expectations of what a relationship is and what a sexual ethic is. We've got pagan temples and worship that's bringing in you know, even more bizarre stuff um, so we just see that, that, yeah, their society was bad too. You know, temple prostitutes, all kinds of stuff like that. And that was a common issue at the time. We see this in a lot of the letters that Paul wrote, right? Uh, he wrote in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. To the church in Ephesus in 5.3, he wrote, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6.9, he wrote, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. I guess it didn't take because he had to write to the Corinthian church again. In 2 Corinthians 12, 21, he wrote, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So as we can see just from that small selection of verses, this is, this is an issue that has faced people for as long as we've existed. Um, all over the world, throughout history. But now, we're faced with, with a different challenge. Um, we have to get to the issue of what scripture says sexual immorality is. Or, you know, to put a finer point on it, what are we defining as sexual sin? And based on, based on our culture, based on the society that we find ourselves in now, I don't think that the church has the luxury any longer of just saying sexual immorality and moving on. Because for 2,000 years, and, and maybe even just a couple of decades ago, there was a general agreement about what this meant. You could say, don't practice sexual immorality, and everybody would pretty much be on the same page. But societally, that's not where we find ourselves now. So, for that reason, it becomes that much more important to define the terms that we're talking about. So, sexual sin, we can define as any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside the covenant of marriage that God designed to be between one man and one woman. Now, we see marriage in Scripture, and we see sexual behavior in Scripture, too, and they're they're put together more often, right? Hebrews 13, four says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And there's an idea that Christians don't like sex, right? That, it, that it's something that we just don't talk about, whatever. But I mean, that's not true either. If we look in scripture, this is something that's talked about. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians two married couples do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
So we see that sex and marriage are important enough to be specifically acknowledged together. And I hesitate to make a list, right, of, of things that we could consider sexual sin because in our flesh, we can be so creative to come up with new and different things to get around what, uh, what the Bible says. So I'll stick with some things that we can back up with God's word. This is, this is a list of things that, that you'll find in scripture as sexual sin. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bisexual conduct, bestiality, incest, pedophilia, pornography, and any attempt to change one's sex or disagreement with one's biological sex. And we've already seen some of those things. We've seen them in that verse from 1 Corinthians that we just read, 6, 9. And just like the early church, Christians today are faced with a society that not only accepts these things, in a lot of cases, they're celebrated. They're promoted or they're held up as something good for society. Um, and to, to promote them as a virtue is in direct conflict with what we find in scripture. So that's, that's a struggle that the church faces on a regular basis, and I think the church faces it more so now. Um, but one of the most destructive things to our society that falls in the realm of sexual sin, I think, is pornography. We're gonna talk about that a little bit today. And, and over the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of talk about pornography. Whether or not it's a societal good or a societal bad, whether or not it's free speech, or even whether pornography is something that's empowering to women. And while it's one thing to have academic discussions and write books and do studies, I think all you have to do is look at the fruit that has been born from society's use of pornography. And you can see very clearly that there is absolutely no good that has come from it. In fact, everything that has come from it is negative. Um, we, we talk about sexual sin here as well because when I look out at the room, I feel comfortable saying that this is a topic that's affected, you know, I don't know, 99% of the people in here, in some way, everybody has, has that way. So again, not everything is something that everybody's experienced, but I think it's affected lives of just about everybody. Um, and we could talk about a lot of those things, but pornography is just so insidious because of the way that it's easily accessible through technology, um, and it's just done untold amounts of devastation to, to younger people who have gotten exposed to it through this technology. And the reason for this is what it does, what it does to your brain. It so rewires the chemistry of your brain that it, it prevents you from being able to look at other people as children of God, right? You can't just look at another man or another woman as as one of God's creation or as a Christian brother or sister. Pornography poisons your mind. It turns you to the point where everything becomes sexual. It destroys your relationships. And I didn't say this earlier, and I, I'm not, we're not gonna go down this road because it's like a whole nother sermon, but just because sexual activity happens within the confines of marriage doesn't mean that it's not sinful. That can happen too. And pornography is one of the causes of these things. Um, 
So not to mention what it does to your relationships with other people or to your spouse. Um, when you're using pornography, you're directly contributing to the exploitation of minors and human trafficking. A lot of people don't choose to be involved in, in this industry. Uh, it, it, it gets chosen for them. And you know, I bet a lot of us, I probably 100% of us in this room would say that we're anti-slavery, right? We don't believe that people should be held as slaves. But the use of pornography contributes to the enslavement of people right now. Uh, and that, that's just a fact. And man, like we could, talk about, we could talk about this all day, but the sexualization of our culture, it comes in before pornography, right? Basically, everything that we look at as entertainment has been degraded at this point. I saw a tweet not that long ago, and what they said was, have you ever noticed that everything we consider entertainment is basically just watching people sin? And when I stopped to think about that, and I applied it to the things that I've watched on TV, I'm like, you're right. This, this is normalizing sin. It's normalizing sexuality in ways that are directly in contrast to scripture. Television shows, movies, music, all kinds of entertainment. They've abandoned what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, and just handed it over for degenerate morals. And that's the largest influence in the culture today, I would say. And, and this is in direct conflict with what the Bible says for believers. Um, even social media sneaks this stuff in. Like, I, I talk to people after the first service, like, there are things that you, you, can, you, can, you can change who you follow, you can change what pages you look at, but you can't change the reels that Facebook delivers to you. You can't necessarily change the ads that they're giving you. And all of it is sexualized. And it gets you moving in the direction of normalizing that kind of thing. So it just sneaks in there. And you know what happens when you are exposed to something over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? It just becomes normal. It becomes a part of your world. And what you once looked at as something, something that was negative or maybe a bad influence on culture, you see it so many times, eventually it just becomes part of the background. And when it becomes part of the background, you start to accept it. And when you start to accept it, then you're unable to speak out about it. And then you have to wonder what's influencing you more. Is it scripture or is it what you've seen and what you've come to accept in culture? It reminds me of this. My parents last year were away from their house for an extended period of time, like multiple months, right? And while the house was empty, mice got in. And the mice, you know, they got in the pantry, they did what mice do, they were nibbling on food. They were chewing through some packages. Stuff was getting strewn all over the place. And they started to move from the pantry to other parts of the kitchen. And eventually, they got themselves under the kitchen sink. And they did the same stuff there. You know, they're like pooping everywhere. They're chewing through cleaning supplies. They're making little nests out of paper towels. But eventually, they got to the the cable that supplies water to the dishwasher and they chewed through it. So now they've, they've destroyed food, they've destroyed other stuff, which doesn't really matter. But now they messed up the dishwasher, chewed through the pipe, it's starting to leak. They get water leaking in the kitchen. 
messing up the little cabinet that's there, running down onto the floor and messing up the floor. And finally, I think I went by there. We stopped it. We got, this, we got it taken care of. But like, if you think about how something as small as a mouse, if it has unfettered access to whatever it wants to do, can destroy something so much larger. It can destroy a house and bring it down, right? And that's what, that's what entertainment is doing to our brains. As we accept these things, as we accept premarital sex as being normal, as we accept adultery as being something that we can laugh about, or as we just accept you know, general sexual activity that is taking place outside of marriage, it, just, it starts to take over like the mice and it starts to destroy like the mice as well. And when you talk about pornography, I mean, you can just throw that whole analogy out, right? Because that's basically like Godzilla coming and stomping down on your house and just destroying the whole thing. Like it doesn't even need the time to chew through stuff. So these temptations to sin, they've always existed, right? They existed for the pagans and even the regular citizens in and around Thessalonica, not to mention the church. And they exist for us today. Like people don't change. We're basically the same uh, as these believers, you know, 1500 years ago or however long we're talking about. So why is this? What, what is it about people. And I would say to you that the reason for this is because the world hates God. And the world hates God because it loves its sin. And the world views God and it views the words of the Bible as standing in the way of the things that the flesh want. And we're going we're gonna to get into this a little bit more. Um, but, but again, people haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is technology. The way we get this stuff, it's just a lot easier and a lot faster. You don't have to go anywhere. Um, and again, this is a huge topic and we don't have time to talk about all of it today, but let's, let's sort of shift the discussion into why this is a big deal. Like I said just a second ago, the world hates God. The world loves sin. We see this all throughout scripture. Like I said, this provides us guidance. This provides us hope. Like God flooded the world because of immorality. Society was sexually immoral. Society was immoral in every way. And God destroyed them all. Uh, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of immorality. Now, he's not gonna flood the earth. We know that. He promised that he wouldn't flood the earth again. But what does he do? Like if our society gets to the point where it's so degraded that things that are blatantly sinful and blatantly against his word are happening, what does he do? How does he handle now? the people that turn against him. So we're gonna look at Romans 1, starting in verse 18. And this is gonna be kind of a long passage, but we have to go through the whole thing, so just bear with me. It's gonna be on the screen, and I'll read it to you. So it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are the idols that they're worshiping. Therefore, God gave them up in, their, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. Like, I don't, when I read the words God gave them up, like, that's, that's serious. Again, that the Lord abandoned them because they insisted on this. Uh, for that reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So when you read that, I hope that as Christians, we come to the conclusion that we can't accept in our lives what the culture around us says is okay. We, we don't take our cues from the world when it comes to these kind of things. We don't, we don't listen to what the world says about sexuality um, because the world, the world will mislead you. The world is not acting or believing according to scripture. And part of, the, part of the problem is, I can read these things to you and I can tell you this and you can tell your kids, but when you send them out into the world, there's a good chance they're gonna get a completely different message back. I can tell you that sexual sin is anything that happens outside of the context of a Christian marriage between a man and a woman. And that, you know, you should not have sex before you're married. But then they'll hear from other people uh, at school. And, and when I say school, I did have a teacher call me out on this. She was like, when you say school, people think it's the teachers telling them this. And it's not always the teachers. It, it, it's the other students. Maybe it's sometimes the teachers, but it's not. So anyway, at school, they'll hear, well, that's great, right? But that's unrealistic. You shouldn't expect to have to do that. It's too hard. Just as long as you're having sex with somebody who cares about you, it's okay. Or as long as you're doing that with somebody that you're okay having a baby with, it's okay. Those things are lies. They are lies from the devil. So um, we can't concern ourselves with what the world says about this. People in this room who are Christians, we can only concern ourselves with what God has to say through his word. And here's the reason why. God is holy. And as a holy God, he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. Now, we're all sinful, but you cannot expect to come into the presence of God bringing your sin and think that you're gonna hold on to even some little part of it in front of him in his presence because that's not the way it works. There's this, there's this popular saying and it's even popular with Christians 
that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Well, guess what? That's also a lie. Listen to what Psalm 5, verses four through six says. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Moving ahead a little bit to Psalm 11:5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So now I got a problem, right? God hates sin. He's not fond of the sinner either. But we're all sinners. You sin, I sin. We're, we're, not, we're not good people, right? Because of the fall, sin is part of our nature. And there is no way for any one of us to be good enough to approach God on our own. And just as God doesn't accept our sin, neither should we. So let's, let's reel it back into 1 Thessalonians and, and see what Paul has to say about this. Let's ask him why he was writing this to the church. So when we look at verse three, part of what he writes is, for this is the will of God for your sanctification. And then we skip ahead a little bit more to verse seven, which sort of ties everything all together. And verse seven says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So God has called each one of us to holiness, right? And that's what sanctification is. When we believe in what Jesus has done and we start to live our lives that way, that's the process of sanctification. And the ultimate outcome of sanctification is conforming to the image of Christ. And it's making us more holy. Um, We'll never achieve perfect holiness in this life, right? Don't, don't make any mistake about that. But we're to constantly be working towards it, and that's sanctification. So said in a different way, sanctification is the evidence of what God has done in our lives through Jesus. Um, and I bet I said the word work somewhere in there, so I always have to give a little disclaimer that when I say work, again, this is not something. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God on our own. That has been done for us. Um, that sanctification is not a legalistic checklist work that we're doing to earn something. Um, sanctification grows out of the gratitude for salvation that God has given us. And there's something that has to come before that, right? So now we're gonna get there. Uh, so I've already hammered on us a lot about the fact that we're sinners. And once again, I know that sexual sin has impacted a lot of people in this room. And believe me, I'm no exception. Like I don't stand up here as, as a perfect example of this. I've done things that I should never have done. Um, so I'm not, I'm not preaching at you or condemning you out of a place of perfection. Um, but before we go on, <laughs> I, I do wanna say one quick thing. This is such a, a loaded topic. And just let me say this to you. If anybody in here has ever been the victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, or anything that was done to you against your will, that's not your sin. That's not something that you have to hold inside, that you have to feel guilty about. And somebody has done something to you. God knows that too. Because the enemy can use any of these things uh, in a variety of ways to trap believers in a lie. Let's go back to that. Like, Satan can force you to dwell on something that, can ha that has happened to you 
again, even if it was against your will. And that lie can be any number of things, right? The lie can be that it was your fault. The lie can be that since it happened to you, that you are no longer worthy of being loved. You're so impure that nobody will love you. Lie. The lie can be that because something happened to you, God loves you less. That's a lie too. Like if anybody has any of these things in your head, that is Satan trapping you in this cycle of despair. That is Satan using sexual sin that was even somebody else's to keep you in a place where you don't need to be. But he can use the opposite of that too, right? If you're a man in your 20s, 30s, even 40s, and you look at what passes for advice to men for masculinity, one of the biggest things is to be with a lot of women, right? That is somehow become, in our culture, an example of degeneracy, that that's a status symbol. And Satan can use that too, because if you become that person and people look up to you, he'll use your pride to just keep hammering the desires of the flesh, to just keep you at that and keep you in that cycle. And that goes for all the sins that I listed earlier. Um, don't, don't ever believe the lie that because you've committed one of these sins, that, that it's over for you, because that's not true. Uh, that will keep you doing it, and that can cause trouble, but you don't have to. Again, it's a lie that it's over for you, and this is why. Let's look at Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 reminds us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you probably didn't need me to remind you of that again, right? You hit that pretty hard so far. Romans 5, 8 reminds us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then everybody knows John 3, 16, but what comes after that in John 3, 17 is beautiful too. Uh, John tells us that God does not send his son, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Like, make no mistake, Jesus will come and bring judgment, but the purpose was for him to come and provide salvation to everybody before that happens. Um, so here's the thing about these verses and what they tell us. What they tell us is that no matter what you've done, like I love saying this, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what lies you've believed, Jesus has justified you before our holy God. Colossians 2.14 says that he, Jesus, canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this was done once and for all for each and every one of us, right? Uh, Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So this is a gift that's available to you. You can take everything from your past. You can pick it up. You can drop it over there at the foot of the cross and you can turn around and you can walk away knowing that you are forgiven by God. Just don't pick it back up again. So even though that pretty much says everything, uh, I'm gonna leave you with a few suggestions on how to work through your own, own sanctification because Paul has given us some principles here to keep in mind to help work out sanctification. So, you know, thankfully they don't have to come from me. Paul's already put them in here. I'm gonna go in reverse order for these. So we're gonna start in verse six. In verse six, Paul writes that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. 
So what this is, is a clear call not to take advantage of fellow believers, you know, or anybody else for that matter. Like under no circumstances should any of us as Christians consider satisfying their physical desires at the expense of another person, um, whether that's involuntary, semi-voluntary, or whatever. Uh, and unfortunately, we have to say this too, but this applies to children as well, right? Um, in Matthew 18, six and seven, Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And I should have put a picture up. I don't know if you've ever seen a millstone. Massive. You would never get out from under a millstone. Um, so a Christian should never be a stumbling block to a fellow Christian. And this is probably the most appropriate place to remind you that while you can lay all your sins at the cross, Jesus has paid those for you and you're justified to God, there are still earthly consequences. And unfortunately, those consequences will not necessarily be taken away. Like the things you've done to somebody or, or whatever, those, those may still be here. Earthly consequences will still remain. So that's just another reason that you shouldn't transgress against another person. Moving on to number two, there's three of these. Uh, in verse five, Paul says that believers are not to act in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So here, this is similar to, or we're reminded what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that's why the world is gonna look at you as weird when you go against what they think is normal in favor of what's in the Bible. You know, if you give up worldly entertainment, you cancel your Netflix subscription or don't watch the Super Bowl halftime show or whatever it is, people are gonna think you're weird. And if they don't know God, they're never gonna understand. Well, not never, but they're not gonna understand right now. First Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They have spiritual blinders on that does not allow them to see these truths. So if you rationalize your behavior using the world as your standard, you're setting yourself up for failure. Listen to what Hebrews says about believers. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So continuing in sexual sin after you know the message of Jesus, it may provide temporary pleasure but it's not worth what you're gonna get for it as a result. You're risking eternal condemnation for that. And, and that's hard to stomach because we wanna do what makes us happy, right? That's part of the pull of the flesh. One of my favorite authors, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, is a pastor in the UK uh, in the 60s and 70s. He wrote, God's great concern for us is not our happiness, but our holiness. So, the purpose of our lives is to serve God and to grow in holiness. It's not to do what makes us happy. Sometimes those things cross, but if they don't, guess who's wrong? Uh, in verse four, this is the last one of these, uh, Paul writes that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So 
Controlling your own body and holiness and honor is not easy, right? Again, we've got the pull of the flesh here, and the flesh is powerful. But this is where I want to give you a little bit of practical application for this and some things that, that you can think about and do. And the first is confess and repent. So if you have these things going on in your past or going on in your life right now, take them to God. I don't necessarily think you need to bring these to other people, although you might, depending on your situation, but the first step is to take it to God uh, and, and repent of it, whatever it is. Like, speaking of this issue and sexual sin, it reminds me of the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman that comes out of John. I didn't put these verses on the screen, so I'm just gonna give you my translation. Um, so the Pharisees were gonna stone this woman, right? She was caught in adultery, one of our sexual sins. And they asked Jesus what should be done. They want to stone her in accordance with Jewish law. They either want Jesus to say, yeah, go ahead and do it, or don't do it, because then they can kill him for going against Jewish law. But Jesus says, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the entire crowd walks away. The woman's still there, and Jesus said to her, you know, woman, who is still here that condemns you? And she says, no one, Lord. And we know what Jesus says after that. He says, well, then, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. So there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's no condemnation from Jesus, but don't ever forget the go and sin no more part. That's important, and that's part of that sanctification process, and sanctification requires you to leave that sin behind. You can't keep going back to it. Now, the second step is also ultra-practical. One problem that we have as Christians sometime, sometimes is that we think that we can pray our way out of anything. So we think if we get in a temptation, we get in a situation, we just curl up in a ball and we pray as hard as we can that God is just gonna deliver us out of that, right? And I'm not saying not to pray, but there are times when you have to be practical and you have to take action. And if you're in a situation, you have to get yourself out of it. Are you tempted by a person? Don't put yourself in a situation where you're alone with that person or you're with that person. Is pornography your struggle? We talked about pornography a whole bunch. Get some of that accountability software like Covenant Eyes or give your spouse access to your phone. Make sure they know your passcode and they can look at these things. Yes, we should pray, but sometimes there's place for common sense and you also have to take action. So don't over-spiritualize that. Get out of the situation. Now the next step is pray. Pray and read your Bible. Again, I'm not gonna ever tell you not to pray. You know, and that's the church answer, right? And I try to find a way to work it into any time I get the chance to speak because it's true. Um, here's another illustration. We talked about mice earlier. This one's a little bit different. So think about tea. Think about a tea bag and what happens when you put it in a mug and then you pour hot water on it. The water seeps into the tea leaves and the flavor of those leaves slowly starts to come out. Sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's 15 minutes, but it infuses itself in the water. And then a few minutes later, where you had plain water, which is good, uh, but a little boring, now you have like the flavor of tea, assuming you like tea. That's what it is to read the Bible to read it consistently, to read it for a few minutes every day. Like picture 
your body as the water, the Bible as that tea bag. You put a little bit into your brain every day. Eventually, it starts to seep into your soul. It seeps into your mind. The word of God becomes a part of you. You find yourself able to speak these verses without even knowing that you remembered them. And it just becomes more and more a part of you. But here's the thing. If you leave a tea bag in water too long, it gets bad. It gets bitter. It gets worse, right? It's not true with the word of God. The more you put in, the more beautiful you become and the more it becomes a part of you. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's what it is with prayer and scripture. And that's why we're always bringing it up. Um, one more small illustration for the men. Ephesians 6 describes the word of God as a sword. A sword is a powerful weapon for combating the enemy. Um, but a sword that's inside a sheath doesn't do you any good when you're in a battle. Same thing with the Bible, right? The word of God is a sword. But if it's closed, if it's on a shelf, it's not a weapon for you. It's not helping you. You don't get righteousness imputed to you because your Bible is in your house. So you have to make sure you're reading it. A closed Bible doesn't help you. All right, finally, the last thing here, the last step you can take is to believe in the work of Jesus on the cross. He, again, I'll say this over and over, he's justified you before the Father. All you have to do is believe it, right? You can't do it for yourself. Romans 4, 23 through 25 says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and for our justification. So let these words be a reminder for anybody who's here and has believed but needs a reminder. Anybody who's here that hasn't believed yet. Or if this is the first time you're hearing this, you can take this home with you today. Like this is for you. This promise has been done already. It is reality and you can live in that promise. So um, Trenton, as you guys, you can come on back to the stage. So as, as they get ready to, to come back and lead us in one more song and we get ready to pray, uh, I just wanna say, I know that this is a really difficult topic and this is sensitive and this is hard to talk about for a lot of us. So if you need prayer or you need to talk to somebody about any of these things, I know we've got at least one elder here. So Aaron, if you wouldn't mind just being you know, up against the wall by the cross, Joy, you can, you can be there as well. Amy, you can do it too. Uh, if you need prayer or just somebody to talk to, find one of these people, find one of the staff members. We're happy to pray for you. And because these are not my words, they're coming from scripture. I wanna leave you with what Paul wrote in verse eight. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So 